Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 29, coming at you in the beginning of August 2020, middle of a hailstorm here in Australia right now, which is quite good. Today's episode is going to focus on one of the great unfolding tragedies affecting planet Earth that is not at all receiving the attention it deserves uh, during this era of COVID-19 and everything else. And that is the climate change tragedy playing itself out in the Arctic regions of our single planet where we all woke up on earlier today. If you've read the news at all in recent months, um, and if you're even slightly well-versed in the field of climate change, you will know that what's going on in the Arctic is truly unprecedented. Uh, The melt levels of permafrost and ice cover there has reached staggering numbers. The other day it was 38 degrees Celsius in parts of the Arctic, And the speed at which things are going wrong is uh, at a pace far faster than most anticipated um, in predicting how things would go in these ice-covered regions. Um, As we all know, if if all the ice on planet Earth were to melt, um, Arctic, Greenland, glaciers, Antarctica, and everything else, uh, sea levels would rise something in the order of 68 meters above where they are today. So we can only imagine what the consequences of that will be. So once again, we are all in this together. What happens in the Arctic, even if you've never been there, even if you never think about it, will impact you and your family and your loved ones and your city and your country and your region, wherever you are. So this is extremely important. So we are overjoyed to have with us today one of the great activists from the Arctic region who's been working on the question of climate change for a very long time, um, who's going to lay out for us exactly how bad things are there, um, what people are doing about it, and what can be done more broadly to sort of arrest the trends that are going on there um, in the negative way that they are. So we are very happy to welcome today Robin Braunen to the podcast. She's the executive director and co-founder of the Alaska Institute for Justice, And she's speaking to us today from lovely Anchorage, Alaska, in the United States. So, Robin, welcome to Jointly Venturing. Thank you, Scott. I'm uh, really appreciative of the invitation and happy to talk with everyone about what is happening in the Arctic. That's great. So, why don't you give us the, uh, the Arctic 101 on climate change right now? How bad are things? I mean, we've seen a lot of bad news lately, but how, what's the firsthand experience you've had in recent months? Well, you provided a really great overview. Um, I use the word climate crisis these days because we are far beyond change and we are Mm -hmm. in crisis and we have been in crisis here in the Arctic now for quite a long time. So you started out by talking about the temperature variations where in Siberia this summer it's been 38 degrees Celsius. Um, Last summer, that's what the temperature was here in Anchorage, Alaska, where I live. Um, And it wasn't just for a day as it was, as it has not been in Siberia. Um, It last summer, it was for weeks where we had these abnormally high temperatures, which caused giant wildfires. Um, And the city where I live was blanketed in smoke throughout a lot of the summer. Unfortunately, this summer, we're having a very different experience where um, I live in a climate that's mostly dry, Mm -hmm. and it's been very humid and rainy. Um, And the temperature increases are, of course, not just in the summertime. Uh, It is most concerning when these temperature increases happen in the winter when uh you know here in the arctic we have um varying degrees of complete darkness meaning the sun doesn't rise very high over the horizon and um when i first moved here 
over 30 years ago in the wintertime. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm not very good at converting Fahrenheit to Celsius or vice versa. That's okay. <laughs> I can I do it. <laughs> when I first moved here, you know, over 30 years ago, it was very common for us to have between minus 20 to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit in our winter time for several weeks during the winter. And our winters usually began in October. That's when the snows would come. Mm -hmm. And the snows would leave in, you know, April. And um, we haven't had those type of uh, temperatures now for um, years, probably over a decade. And what's been happening instead is during our winter time, we have uh, temperatures that hover at freezing. And so we all know that, you know, one degree separates thawing from freezing. And so throughout our winter, we hover above freezing and below freezing so that we're getting a lot. It's mostly icy. We're not getting the depth of cold that is needed to keep the permafrost intact and Arctic sea ice intact. And so those high temperatures are radically impacting Arctic sea ice extent and also permafrost, which is the permanently frozen ground that underlies the northern part of Alaska. Right, right. And, and I mean, permafrost is no longer frost, is it? It's melting. Yeah, so what's happening is, you know, the, uh, it's sometimes, so what used to normally happen was that the permafrost, there's an upper layer of permafrost that's called the active layer, and that active layer has always thawed in the summertime, um, and it is always frozen in the wintertime. And what we're seeing now is that in our wintertime, that active layer is not freezing. Um, and not only is it not freezing, but that active layer is at greater and greater depth inside of the earth. Um, and that's happening because of how hot our summers have been. And permafrost, it is critical in, in regard to it being frozen because it protects the structural integrity of a lot of the infrastructure in um, many different parts of the state. And so what does that look like to a, you know, an average person just coming up there? What would they see as a result of the melt so, happening? Yeah. So what you would see, um, and this isn't happening in Anchorage, but it's happening in rural Alaska and many of the Alaska Native villages where I work, mm -hmm. particularly along the coast. Um, and so because Arctic sea ice extent is also at record lows, um, we have fall storms that happen in, um, those fall storms are happening now, not only in October and November, but they're going into January and February. And we don't have hurricanes, uh, but we have hurricane strength storms. So we have wind storms often over, um, you know, 160 kilometers per hour. Um, and without that Arctic sea ice, you get these storm surges on permafrost. And so it's causing accelerating rates of land to be lost. Um, we have worked with indigenous communities, so this accelerated land collapse is called Ushtek, which is a Yupik word that has been defined to mean catastrophic land collapse. And that land collapse is causing the infrastructure that the tribes rely on to sometimes fall into the ocean or along rivers um, or to disrupt the uh, structural integrity of the homes where people live. And um, even though this is the United States, many of the communities that I work with have no running water in their community, no sewage system, uh, plumbed sewage system. So the thawing permafrost and Ushtek is compromising, for instance, sewage lagoons, 
which contain the solid waste for communities. Wow. And, and how many communities would this be affecting, would you say, in terms of indigenous communities in Alaska? Wow, that's some are honestly hard to for me to pull up honestly off the top of my head because there are 229 tribes in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And uh, each one of those tribes are in village and many of those villages are not connected to a road system. So for the majority of those those villages, those Alaska Native tribes, um they are not road connected and they're, you know, throughout our state. So I um our state is really large geographically and so it really depends on the ecosystem. Uh, that that tribe is located in. And so one of the places that our agency works in is southwest Alaska, Mm -hmm. where there are 656 of those 229 villages. And even though I have not been to all of those communities, I would say all of them are impacted by this. And that's just some of the communities that are impacted because in the northwestern part, of our state, they would equally be affected by thawing permafrost and loss of Arctic sea ice extent. So some some of the first communities in the United States that have had to move because of climate change are located in Alaska. So how's that process going for places such as uh, Shishmaref and Newtalk and the others that are really severely threatened? Uh, so it's um, awful. I um, I honestly, I don't know what other word to use. Um, and as you mentioned in your opening, I have been working on this for a really, really long time on creating a governance framework that protects the human rights of these communities that have done the least in regard to greenhouse gas emissions. And so I feel like we, um, we meaning me and you and your listeners, we're responsible for the fact that these communities are now having to make this awful decision to relocate. And, you know, and the U.S. government, um, does, unbelievably but true, does not have the capacity um, to relocate the communities because we do not have the governance structure in place. So you mentioned Shishmaraf, you also mentioned New Talk, and there's a third community, Kivalina, mm-hmm. because those three communities made the decision to relocate now almost 20 years ago. And New Talk is the only community that has actually moved forward with their relocation effort. The other two communities, Shishmaraf and Kivalina, are still at the location of their current village um, and are in varying stages of uh, working with different state and federal government agencies to facilitate what they decided, you know, as I said, decades ago, to relocate their village to a place that's safer. Um, With New Talk last summer, so this is after about 20 years of the community advocating intensely with Congress and with our state legislators, a third of the community um, relocated to a relocation site that the tribal government and tribal residents uh, voted on back, I think, in 2004. Um, And it's 12 kilometers across the Ninglik River. Their community is called Matarvik. And um, so a third of the community relocated Two-thirds are still in the current, uh, the original location of New Talk, and there's no real time frame, and especially now with the virus, of when those two-thirds of the community will be able to join their other community members who are now at the relocation site. This has caused tremendous issues for the community. So one of them is the fact that, as I mentioned um, Earlier, the only way to get to most of rural Alaska is by small 10-seater planes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's 10-seat, you know, people in these small planes. And 
uh, New Talk has a deteriorating airstrip, deteriorating because of permafrost thaw, and uh, the Department of Transportation is not willing to invest uh, in a new airstrip at the relocation site um, because they refuse to um, build a, another airstrip while there's a functional airstrip in Newtalk. And so this has affected the public health and safety of community residents. So it just happened last week or a couple of weeks ago where one of the people living in Matarvik had a medical crisis and had to get across the river to then get on the plane to then get to a hospital. Uh, and that's just one example of the tremendous challenges that are being caused by the lack of having an institutional framework that mandates government agencies to provide the resources and funding so that people can be safe um, and can relocate in a way that protects their human rights. So how, how did the people, I mean, to, to most people listening to this, they've probably not been to Alaska or, and certainly not to those uh, indigenous communities, uh, but there's plenty of film footage available on the internet, which shows, you know, the scale of the disaster that's been unfolding for decades there, and particularly um, now. So, you know, I'd urge everybody to have a look at those things. And, you know, it's almost impossible to believe that that's occurring in, in what is still the richest country on planet Earth. How do the local people there, generally in Alaska, but particularly the, the indigenous groups that are directly affected by the situation forcing their relocation, how do they respond when the government of the United States withdraws from the Paris Climate Agreement, the only country that has ever done so? What, what does that do to them in terms of uh, you know, their faith that government is meant to be there to help them? And to help the poorest of the poor um, in, in a country which, of course, is responsible for you know, the lion's share of CO2 emissions historically. Um, how do people react to that when the, when the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Agreement? Yeah, so uh, honestly, Scott, I'm not sure that I could answer that question because the Paris Agreement does honestly, not very much, if anything, to address this issue of climate force displacement. Um, obviously, it affects uh, whether or not the U.S. government is going to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And um, right now, we are in an epic struggle, struggle to prevent oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Mm -hmm. um, and to prevent additional oil drilling uh, in the Arctic Ocean. Um, but in regard to the climate force displacement that's happening, there's not a direct linkage. Um, it's it's uh, the, our, the U.S. government's failure to respond to this in a way that provides the communities the resources is more complicated than, you know, our withdrawal from the Paris Agreement. Of course, of course. But what do, what do you feel about the withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement? Because obviously there's a basis, there's a reason for that, right? There's a, there's a rationale that Trump and all of his supporters have in deciding that we should no longer be part of this leading international agreement to reduce greenhouse emissions um, in, in, within an administration, we should add, that is full of, of very widely known climate change denialists. So, I mean, how does that make you personally feel when you see that your country is the only one that um, is actually actively withdrawing from the most important climate change agreement in the world? Yeah, well, I've, it's awful. You know, I've used that word already once, and I will use it probably again, because the situation right now in the United States is um, profoundly difficult and challenging 
for every issue related to justice and human rights. And our withdrawal from the Paris Agreement is just one glaring example of how the current administration is not um, not protecting, you know, people and species, and not only here in Alaska, you know, or the United States, but all over the world. There is an urgent need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, and we absolutely need government leadership. Um, but it's also our individual responsibility. You know, I mean, that's what I um, have come to believe because, you know, even with President Obama coming to the Arctic, which was awesome, Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the first sitting president to actually come to the Arctic, and he came here because um, of the tremendous advocacy that the Alaska Native tribes did in regard to this issue of climate forced relocation. And even with that, with President Obama's administration, we weren't able to get the communities the resources they need or elevate this issue. So while the current president is exacerbating that by withdrawing uh, the U.S. from the Paris Agreement, it's really important to understand how awful this issue is of climate force displacement and that no government wants to deal with it, but that is what we have set in motion. And not just, of course, in the United States, but all over the world. And governments... You know, we have an, and you know this, Scott, we have an awful legacy of governments forcing indigenous communities in particular all over the world to relocate at their horrific consequence. And so we're entering really fraught space when we start talking about relocation. We have no models at all about how to protect people's human rights in this context of climate forced relocation. And the only models that we have are when governments make the decisions and forcibly relocate people uh, and we know what the consequences for them are. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've been living through, uh, I mean, you could really say about the last two centuries, um, besides the other things you can say about them, but those have been the centuries of displacement. And centuries of forced displacement in most cases. And both you and I in various contexts have been working against forced displacement, um, you know, opposing it um, in all, you know, all corners of the earth for a very long time for a whole range of reasons. Most importantly, the, the sheer brutality and human rights violations that are invariably associated with that. And all anybody has to do is just imagine that they're sitting in their own house and they get a knock on the door one day and it's the authorities and they say, you have 10 minutes to leave, gather what you want because we're bulldozing your home. And that sort of process in various forms has taken place across the planet, continues to take place across the planet. And the, the growing climate displacement crisis is just, just going to augment um, much more the, the ongoing um, broader displacement crisis caused by development projects, but also caused, of course, by conflict, war, and, you know, the occupation of entire peoples and the disenfranchisement and disavowal of the rights of indigenous peoples everywhere who make up, you know, uh, five to 10% of the human race. And, you know, most countries in the world have an appalling record, an appalling track record when it comes to the treatment of indigenous people. And they are rising up and they are fighting back. And, movements in support of indigenous people are growing probably to the highest level they've ever been at. And there have been incremental steps forward, um, but it's still very much of an uphill battle. And when it comes specifically to climate displacement, um, obviously poor people in countries who happen to live along the coastline are, are, you know, globally most at threat. Bangladesh, uh, which has been the topic of one or two other podcast episodes is probably, you know, the, the ultimate frontline state when it comes to climate change. But climate displacement against indigenous peoples in particular is also extremely prevalent, whether it's in Panama uh, with the Gunayala indigenous group or whether it's in the Solomon Islands, Fiji, 
whole range of other countries, um, it's the indigenous people who, who tend to get affected first. And obviously, of course, in Alaska as well. And, you know, both you and I, Robin, and, and a range of other people were involved in this process that eventually culminated in the adoption of the Peninsula Principles on Climate Displacement within States, which will be celebrating its seventh anniversary um, on the 18th of August, um, so just in a couple of weeks. And, and that document, of course, sets out what human rights law ultimately says states must do uh, to protect the rights of climate displaced people everywhere, both in terms of preventing it and in terms of remedying it. And it really takes the perspective that there must be new homes for lost homes and new land for lost land. And, um, you know, we can positively report that those principles um, have been used extensively across the world to guide the development of policy and practice in addressing some of these rights that affect climate displaced people, in particular in countries like Fiji and Vanuatu and Bangladesh, Panama, a range of others. Um, the principles really have been instrumental in, in shaping um, national policies. Um, but will that be enough? And the question, of course, is probably not. But we are now working on, an, on a, a sort of next step um, of applying the Peninsula Principles, which is relevant to Alaska as much as anywhere else, which is promoting this idea of climate displacement havens, whereby communities that want to assist climate displaced communities, and there are many across the world, um, can be facilitated to do so to make it easy for them to resettle climate displaced people, whether within their own country or from third countries, um, in their own communities um, as a way of resolving this problem. So we're really pushing for that in a whole range of different countries and working with local groups and local communities that want to welcome these people. So there is, you know, that's kind of a positive twist to the um, generally negative twist when it comes to climate change. But back to the Arctic again, um, what else can you tell us besides Alaska? Can you tell us anything about what's happening in Canada, Russia, Norway, some of the other Arctic countries? And what are some of the geopolitical dimensions of the great Arctic ice melt? Yeah, so um, there is some information coming from Canada of how communities uh, along the coast are being faced with this issue of forcible displacement because of the climate crisis. Um, there was a meeting that was supposed to happen in November of this year in bringing folks together from the Arctic to talk about this issue. But of course, because of the virus, it's been postponed. Mm -hmm. And um, I would say one of the things that's really challenging is that, uh, and I think speaks volumes about where we are at as a global community. So if you look at um, the Arctic Council, for instance, which is this ministerial body of bringing countries together, not only in the Arctic, but now many countries like China and Singapore, I think are either part of the Arctic Council or want to be part of the Arctic Council, it's this um, loss of Arctic sea ice that I mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, which is now, you know, countries see this as an economic opportunity. They see it as an economic opportunity uh, in regard to the possibility of uh, oil and gas drilling. They see it as a possibility in regard to faster shipping. And uh, this issue that we are talking about today um, barely gets mentioned. And so, um, you know, and our concern is that, um, you know, it's just, it's such a hard conversation to have. Um, so it's awesome that there are places around the world that want to offer safe haven but it's also really important to understand that the loss is giant and that we're allowing that to happen, as I said. Right. Because most people, um, and I, I'll, I also have been an 
immigrant rights attorney in the United States for a long time Mm -hmm. and have worked with immigrants and refugees seeking asylum. And what I can say from that experience of working with thousands of people here is most people don't want to leave their home. Some people do because they fall in love. But most people want to stay in the place they love and call home, you know? And so for me, I just, uh, you know, I just, it hurts my heart. I'm heartbroken that this is where we're at um, in regard to trying to now figure out what we already know is a seriously problematic issue in regard to climate force, resettlement, relocation, whatever you call it. And that the World Bank is trying to take the lead now on this issue at an international level, which is deeply concerning because what you and I just spoke about, Scott, in regard to the horrific legacy of World Bank-funded government-mandated relocations Mm -hmm. and resettlements. Um, And the Peninsula Principles are really the, the document is like the first document to really squarely put human rights at the center of this issue. And when I think of human rights in regard to climate force displacement, the human right in my mind, and this is based on my experience working with indigenous tribes in Alaska, is the right to self-determination. Right. So what's most important is that tribes, individuals are making the decision about what they need in order to protect themselves, their community, their family from these accelerated environmental changes that are caused because the climate is in crisis. And what we need to do to make sure that these different, you know, whether it's the individual or community, that they are given the resources so that they can effectuate their human rights self-determination and absolutely get housing, get land if that's possible, but that we are going to make sure that people do not suffer more of a loss than they will already suffer from the fact that they're losing the place they call home. Absolutely true. And, you know, it goes back again to uh, if we just look back again at the question of how indigenous people in particular are affected by climate change and climate displacement, there's an extra added dimension, which is also conveniently ignored by most people. And that's the simple fact that indigenous peoples globally, this may manifest in different ways, but essentially that at its core, it, it, it is the same. The relationship that they have with their historical lands um, is infinitely deeper and infinitely more complex and intertwined with the, the entire history of their people and themselves than it is with people who are non-Indigenous. And in many countries, so Aboriginal people, for instance, here in Australia, um, they cannot physically differentiate between their own physical bodies and the land from which they hail. The land and the human is one and the same. You cannot take a person off of their land because the land is they themselves and vice versa. So this makes climate relocation even far worse and far more dramatic for indigenous people um, because they're very often being forced to leave land, which is not only their place of habitual residence over many, many countless generations where their ancestors are buried and so on and so forth, but the very source of life itself. So you can never move land. You can only move people from the land. And, and this is another added dimension to, the whole, to, to just, just how severe this climate displacement crisis is for indigenous people in particular and why prevention is obviously the number one priority, making it as, you know, allowing people to live as long as physically possible on land that is theirs. And and there are important lessons that can be learned by, uh, for instance, looking at what's happening in, in Panama now on the East Coast with the Gunayala indigenous group. Um, you know, they have more autonomy, more political and legal autonomy than, than virtually any other indigenous group in the entire Americas, North, North and South America, Caribbean combined. And as a result of that autonomy, once again, it goes back to the question of agency and control and, and variations of, of self-determination. 
because they have that, um, they also are the ones calling the shots when it comes to relocation and also determining where they will move to. And fortunately for them, um, the movement that is taking place from man-made islands, I mean, very old man-made islands, hundreds of years old man-made islands, off the coast onto the mainland is moving from Gunayala territory onto Gunayala territory. So that part of the equation is sort of solved for them. Um, what's not solved, of course, is the cost associated with it and, re- and creating infrastructure and schools and, and job opportunities, etc. But nonetheless, that's a really good and interesting model for people to know about, that if people have to move, if there's any possibility that they can move from their land to another part of their land that's safe and secure, that is infinitely better than the alternative where they have to move hundreds of miles away, particularly if there's a degree of coercion involved. But we, as you said, we have a very, very, very big uphill battle to get this question ever higher on the global political agendas. I I would say I haven't researched this particular point very greatly, but I would say there's a handful at most of uh, uh, looked at globally of political parties that have the question of climate displacement anywhere in their political party manifestos or platforms. Um, I would presume... I hope otherwise, but I would presume that even the Democratic Party of the United States, uh, who's developing it, its platform now, doesn't have specific mention to uh, the question of climate displacement. And you could apply that to virtually every country, despite the fact that this is a truly global problem of a gargantuan proportions, which is only going to get larger. Every prediction of climate displacement, of the scale of climate displacement, has been completely wrong and underestimated by a magnitude of sometimes 5, 10, 15 times. I mean, the current estimates, the lowest you ever see is 500 million people who are going to have to leave their homes because of climate change, and there's some that go much higher than that. So can you give us any good news on the climate displacement front, Robin Bronnen? Yes, I can in regard to um, this. Uh, work that we are doing internationally. Mm-hmm. So um, we work, you know, at multiple levels of government. So we work with the tribes to ensure that their right to self-determination is protect- protected. We work at the national level because one of the things that the Peninsula Principles highlighted, which I think very few folks really understand, is that you need an institutional governing framework of how this is going to happen and that that institutional framework needs to be based in human rights. So we have been submitting comments to Congress. So we've mapped out for at least Alaska, and I think it's relevant to other parts of the United States, of what that governance framework should look like. Mm -hmm. And um, actually the Biden campaign, or no, I guess it was the House Climate Crisis Committee uh, included uh, a statement about relocation in the report that they issued maybe now a couple of weeks ago. Um, And that's we've been able to get that language in national reports. But now we need the what does this mean? And that's what we're working on. Um, As I started out when I started talking, so internationally what we're doing is we the commonalities about what's happening here in the Arctic and the South Pacific are uh, um, amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the uh, there is so much similarity. And um, back in 2012, I uh, I traveled with two folks from New Talk, uh, the the Alaska Native community that I mentioned earlier, to uh, the Carteret Islands to Papua New Guinea um, to meet with Ursula Rakova Mm -hmm. and uh, the Carteret Islanders so that they could do a knowledge exchange so that they could, because at that time in 2012, they were the only communities that I knew of that were, that where the elders of these communities were saying, okay, we need to relocate. And so it felt like there was tremendous opportunity for them to share their expertise with each other. 
Right. And we followed that up with a, we had a convening here in Alaska with um, eight community-based organizations from eight countries in the South Pacific in 2018 um, to continue that knowledge sharing and coalition building. Um, and from that convening, uh, a declaration was issued um, mm -hmm. about the protecting their human rights, protecting the earth, recognizing our responsibility to the planet that is the web of life. And then we just, uh, on behalf of five tribes, um, one in Alaska and four in Louisiana, we filed a complaint with the UN Special Rapporteurs um, and um, are awaiting. Uh, it's a confidential process, so we don't know what is happening since our submission. We submitted it, I think, honestly, I can't remember. Sometime in the spring, we submitted it. And... Mm -hmm. um, we're hoping there's going to be some sort of a public decision or acknowledgement of the complaint that we filed in the next couple of months. Uh, and um, are hoping that the UN and the Human Rights Council takes this issue seriously from Indigenous communities so that it's critical that the frontline communities that are faced with this awful, awful decision about needing to relocate, that their voices are heard and that they are leading whatever happens within countries and also internationally about what we need to do to make sure that their rights are protected when they leave the places they love. Absolutely. And, um, just to let you know, um, that uh, complaint that you just mentioned that you filed jointly with those other groups, um, um, that is uh, increasingly widely known about and, of course, is listed in the big database that Columbia University holds about um, climate change litigation um, all around the world. And um, I, of course, my next book is about this very question of courtrooms and climate change, so... That is already mentioned in there prominently. So let's hope that the UN does something with it. As you probably know, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Internally Displaced People, Cecilia Jimenez, um, she was just on the podcast a few weeks ago, and she indicated that her next report will be focused uh, explicitly on the question of climate displacement, and she'll be presenting that to the United Nations General Assembly in September or October. So let's hope um, both that all of these issues get adequate mention in a report and let's hope that the General Assembly is, um, you know, seized of the moment and actually decides to do something um, about it because we are really facing a, a serious, uh, serious global crisis. And, you know, on the one hand, when we're very optimistic and we put forward, you know, positive looking proposals and very constructive proposals about what type of institutional frameworks can be put into place and governance frameworks to solve this problem. I mean, we've been pushing this idea of climate land banks for quite some time, you know, so getting governments to set aside land that can be allocated um, to climate displaced communities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it's very easy to kind of postulate what could be possible. On the other hand, if we take a long, hard, cold look at the way that the human race has played itself out since the end of the Second World War, 75 years ago, and look at it explicitly through the lens of land and housing and property, or housing, land, and property, HLP rights, um, there's a reason why there's more than one billion slum dwellers in the world. And there's a reason why the UN predicts that one out of every three human beings is going to be living in slums by the year 2050. Um, and somehow our species is willing to accept that one-sixth of us now and one-third of us later is expected to live out their lives, their 20, 30,000 days on this planet, in incredibly horrible physical conditions. And so if we look at that example and try to extrapolate from that how we're going to treat the rights of climate displaced people realistically, um, it's very, very difficult to remain optimistic. 
And it's very easy to see that all of our predictions about what will happen to these people, um, where the slum becomes the default option for most climate displaced people in most places, will become reality far more likely than it won't, despite all of our efforts and the millions of others that are trying to push things in the right direction and the right direction, um, so that these people can actually have a, you know, a fair go in the long run and be able to live a full life in a decent and adequate um, set of circumstances. So, you know, it's hard to remain optimistic, but we have to keep plugging away and we have to keep drawing attention to this problem and realize that, you know, unless we do it, it's not just the people affected that are going to suffer, it's everyone else as well, because these are going to have huge economic, social, political, and other consequences that will affect everyone. Even in very wealthy Australia, where I'm broadcasting from, um, you know, over 300,000 coastal properties along the coastline, according to government reports, are under threat of permanent inundation. And yet there's no policy in place to address that. There's no special measures that have been adopted to assist those people. Um, and yet we know all about it, but nothing is being done to kind of prevent it or to work in a way that will reduce the scale of that particular form of, you know, rather luxury by global comparison, forms of displacement. So we're living in the age of climate displacement now, ladies and gentlemen, and we need to do a lot more about it. And so what else can you tell us, Robin? What else can you tell us on a positive note, if anything? Or what will you, you know, what do you think that are the real priority areas for action in the coming few years when it comes to this question? Well, Scott, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share what's happening in the Arctic. Um, and I agree with you in regard to um, the reality of uh, the um, how we as a global community have come to accept extreme poverty as being part of this paradigm of humanity when it is completely not only unconscionable, but not necessary, given the wealth that is on this planet. Right. And I, uh, and for me, I mean, I think it's, it's tough, honestly. I mean, um, given what's happening with the current administration in the United States and seeing how, this fragile democracy that was built on genocide and slavery is fracturing before our eyes and, um, and what we need to do about it. And I think of John Lewis, who was a congressperson for many decades in the House, um, a civil rights leader who talked about good trouble. Mm -hmm. And what he meant, or my interpretation, is it is critical for us to use our voice and our bodies to resist and transform and to have that vision of what our human collective can be when it's based in love, equity, equality, and justice, and peace, of course. And so... For me, it's just keep this creating, like we need a model for an institutional framework. Like we can't be saying we need to protect the human rights of those forcibly displaced without providing the detail of how that's going to happen so that we have a narrative to challenge the narrative that is going to be, if not already, coming out of institutions like the World Bank. Um, and, you know, and it's very country specific. So I'm assuming there are people from all over the world listening to this, you know, and what I say to the students who contact me and want to do research in the Arctic, I'm like, focus on the place where you live and love. Because as you said, Scott, this issue is going to affect all of us. And if we love the places we call home, we are the best people to figure out what needs to put be put into place so that everyone has the opportunity to continue to live lives that they want to live as the climate crisis accelerates and makes it more and more difficult for that to actually happen. 
Absolutely true. Very well said. And I mean, maybe we'll just conclude with those very wise words that are once again based on, you know, the old adage of thinking globally and acting locally. And that may sound like an archaic phrase from the 60s, um, but it's as relevant today. It's probably more relevant today um, than ever before. Um, You know, the human race shares so much with everyone, with one another, so much more than differentiate us. And yet we're still so far from coming together as one species. And let us use this this horrible period of a global pandemic where so many millions of people have been infected and so many hundreds of thousands have already died and many more will in the coming months. Let us use that combined with the very real and very measurable impacts of climate change as an imp- as a dual impetus to see that by coming together and by working together and by viewing the planet as one unified whole, um, where we focus much more on our similarities, the 99.9% of our DNA that's the same rather than our differences, that provides the possibility for a much rosier future. And it's that common view and that simple understanding that all of us woke up on the same place today as we do every single day on this one planet upon which every single one of us is entirely dependent for our existence, that realization multiplied by 7.8 billion people will result in a far, far, far better planet than the one that we currently have measured by contemporary politics. We have it within our grasp and we need to do that. And unity rather than bifurcation is, you know, the only way forward if we're going to really flourish into the future. So Robin Bronin from, the Alaska Institute for Justice in Anchorage, Alaska. Thank you so much for being with Jointly Venturing today. And, you know, congratulations on all of your efforts um, on behalf of uh, immigrants and also indigenous people and others in Alaska and globally. And all I can say is keep up the good work and keep it going as long as you possibly can. Thank you, Scott. It's always an honor to speak with you and to work with you and thank you so much for the opportunity all right well that was robin Bronin from alaska speaking about the arctic crisis we'll be back next week with a special episode i won't describe what it's going to be keep it special episode 30 so with that fare thee well everybody all the best take care bye